Well, good morning. My name is Derek, one of the pastors here, and uh, excited to have you here this morning. If you were going to grade your own faith on a percentage, what grade would you get? You know, wh- how much of your life do you entrust to God? Are you at 90%? Pretty good, right? That's an A. 70%? Are there pieces of your life that you're like, you know, I'll handle this part. You know, I'll, I'll have my God time over here. I'll go to church Sunday, whatever, but... Monday through Saturday is mine, or, or is there something you read in Scripture and you're like, I don't really like that part, and so you highlight it with a Sharpie, you know, pieces of your life that, that maybe, maybe God needs your help, right? Like, I trust you, God, but, but here you tell me how to deal with this relationship, but I'm not sure you can handle it, so let me do it for you. What, would, what grade would you get? Um, we learned to, to wake surf a couple summers ago, and I don't know if you've seen that, wake surfing. Um, it's where you have to overload a side of a boat, and it creates this big old wave, uh, and you start out holding onto a rope, and then you try and catch that wave. It's really fun. Um, but the goal, right, is, is to let go of the rope and actually surf it. Uh, I have a brother-in-law who's pretty good at it. You know, he gets, you know, moved forward and then trying to do flips around and whatever, and it's a lot of fun. But the tendency, especially starting out, is, is you get surfing, and you're holding onto the rope, Right, And you catch the wave, but the goal is to let go. But you hold on because, well, what if I drift back? I have to pull myself back forward. And you, you miss out a little bit on the experience if you hold on to the rope. And I think in some ways our spiritual life can be the same way. God wants us to surf the wave, right? Trust him complete, completely because he's worth it. And he can stand up to it. But we hold on. We're like, oh, I'll trust you mostly. But, but what if you need my help, right? I'm going to hold on to this. Well, we're going to be in Romans 4. Turn to Romans 4, please, because we are continuing our series in Romans, uh, and we've seen really the theme is saved by faith. And today, I want to ask the question, what do we contribute to our own salvation? Or, more specifically in context of this chapter, what do we contribute to our own righteousness? Because we can have a tendency to, yeah, I believe in Jesus, I'm saved by faith, but then... I'm going to work really hard or, or add these pieces to it's, it's faith and a little bit of something else. And here in this chapter, Paul, the writer, is going to do a really good job of giving us what is faith really, what does it look like, and how much do we contribute to our righteousness or to our salvation. So Romans 4, starting in verse 1, says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Our forefather according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness." So if you are a, a note taker, you know, you got your bulletin, you can take notes on there. I'm one, I like to, you know, read with a pencil. I like to actually mark in my Bible. And so in this section, I have several things kind of circled, right? Gained, flesh, counted. If you, if you circle counted, it appears four or three times right there, and it's going to appear ten times in this whole chapter, right? Righteousness appears twice. So as you circle things, whatever, and you you mark it, you know, things jump out. So do whatever you need to mark up your Bible or to take notes to track along, because this is really life-changing stuff. But he begins with our question. 
What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? It's the same question I asked. What do we contribute to our own salvation, to our own righteousness? Now, I'm not going to assume we all know the story of Abraham, so let's sum that up real quick. Uh, Abraham was the father of the, the nation of Israel. Uh, if you go back, you know, it's way back here in Genesis. Um, but God created. Uh, we sinned, right? Adam and Eve sinned. The fall, a little bit later, uh, things get really bad, and so God wipes out with a global flood. Uh, Noah and his three sons and their wives come through the flood. They kind of restart things. A little while later, right, they're repopulating the earth. People are all over the place. Now, um, God decides to start his redemptive plan. And so he calls Abraham. Now, Abraham was uh, from a family of idol worshipers. You know, he wasn't some great special guy. He was just a guy. And God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Go to the place I will show you. And so Abraham obeys and he follows, and God is initiating something with Abraham to start this new nation, which later, by the way, we're going to talk about this in, in uh, groups over the next two weeks, we see other covenants. God makes a covenant with Abraham, and then he makes several others. And if you want to understand your Bible, just follow the covenants throughout, and you really get a good grasp uh, on redemptive history, what God was doing. But right here it says, what was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. Again, there's another word, flesh. Uh, flesh is not always a bad word, but most of the time it's, it's the body apart from God, right? The body, including your, your, your mind, your emotions, and your will, it's these in operation apart from God, which is what Abraham was, right? He was worshiping idols. He was just going through life apart from God. And then God called him, but wh what did he gain from his flesh? And the answer is nothing. Nothing is gained according to his flesh. Now, something we need to understand about Abraham. Uh, when God called him and when he went, God said, I'm going to, here's the covenant that he made. I'm going to make you into a great nation. There's three things in this covenant that God made with Abraham. Land, which is the land of Canaan. Um, seed, which would be many nations, and specifically one seed, which would be Jesus. I'm giving away the story. Um, land, seed, and blessing, right? That they would be a blessing, they would be blessed. Well, the problem was Abraham was 100 years old. His wife, Sarah, was 91, right? Way past time of having babies. And so God says, no, from you and from Sarah, I'm going to make into a great nation. And he believed God. And so here we see he believes God, and that's counted as righteousness, counted. Uh, that word is credited, meaning he didn't have anything in his flesh, and so he is credited as having righteousness because of his faith, because of his belief. And this is uh, one of those principles that we need to understand to understand Scripture that we see here. It's that of total depravity. Total depravity because of the fall, Adam and Eve's sin, every person is born spiritually bankrupt in their flesh. So, so that's what that means. We are bankrupt. Uh, in, in Abraham's flesh, he had nothing to offer. And guess what? Neither do you. Neither do I. Now, I mean, if you're much of a theologian, you hear total depravity, you're like, ooh, that's Calvinism. Uh, and that's one of the points of Calvinism, and I'm not a five-point Calvinist. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it doesn't matter that much. Um, but this part is, is necessary that we are spiritually bankrupt, right? The Bible talks about us being dead in our trespasses and sins. Not a little bit alive, right? Uh, not mostly dead, but all dead, at the bottom of the pool, drowned dead. And so here, Abraham is 
dead all the way, totally depraved. Now, if Abraham added something to his righteousness, he could boast about it. That's what it's talking about here. He could brag on that, but he can't. So you look at verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So if you earn something, right, you do a job, you get paid. You're not like, oh, thank you for this gift. You're like, no, give me my paycheck. I worked for it. But our righteousness, we cannot earn, no matter how hard we work at it. So it is a free gift. And verse 5 applies to us, right? The one, that could be you, I hope, who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly. Who's the ungodly? Everybody. His faith is counted, credited as righteousness. So that's the picture. We are totally bankrupt, right? Our bank account is zero, and we want to go pay a bill, and we can't. So God fills it up. That's our righteousness. Nothing we can add, nothing we can do, and God fills us up with Jesus' righteousness. Our righteousness is a credit because God gives us what we did not earn and do not deserve. This is huge. Maybe you've struggled with this. I'm saved, and now I need to help God out by, by working really hard. Or maybe you've experienced this in church, where you walk in, and there's the, the, the really righteous people, and they look down on you for what you're wearing or, or the sins you struggle. You know, like, I've arrived. Someday you'll be as good as me. Um, when we really understand this, we can never go there. We can never boast because we don't add anything to our righteousness. So Abraham is given as an example. Now David, which is kind of interesting because two of the covenants, one was made with Abraham, another is made with David. Both of those, again, giving away the story, are eternal covenants, unconditional covenants. There's another covenant we're going to look at, the Mosaic covenant. That one is conditional and is replaced by the new covenant. Again, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go to group this week. We're going to study it. Um, but now he's going to talk about David. Look at verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes a psalm. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So here's David being quoted. And what is David known for? The greatest king of Israel, absolutely. He's known for killing Goliath when he was probably 14, 15 years old. Cool. He's also known for his affair with Bathsheba, right? He, he's known for, for adultery and then murdering her husband. I, I mean, kind of horrible stuff. And he writes this. So from that, right, works. You know, he does not have all the good works to add in. He has some very serious failings. And he says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins, Right? whose lawless deeds are forgiven. And so both Abraham and David both are considered right, not because of works, but because of belief, because of faith. This is a quote from Psalm 32, which is a prayer of confession. So who gets this, this blessing that we're talking about? Well, verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted, there's that word again, to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision, 
as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who would believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. They use that word a lot, circumcised, right? <laughs> right? But, but here's, here's the point. Who gets the credit? Well, the Jews, and here was the struggle. Abra, or, uh, uh, Paul is writing to, to Roman Christians. Most of them, a lot of them would be Jews because Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was the Israelite Messiah. They were waiting for him. So the first converts to Christianity were, were Jews. But they struggled with this idea of, but we're God's chosen people. And so... So people would be saved, right, under, under Christ, and the Jews would say, now you have to become a Jew, meaning you have to go get circumcised. A lot of women would do it, right? But a lot of men are like, I'm out. <laughs> no, I, I'm not doing that. And that happened before Christ came. People could convert to Judaism. They could become Israelites, right? But the men had to get circumcised. And as, as you look, like, there were more women joining than men. They were called God-fearers, the Gentiles. And they would go, they would worship God, but they wouldn't go all the way in understandably. But here, so that's the picture though. When was Abraham accepted by God as righteous? Before or after circumcision? His point is before, right? He was considered righteous with God because he believed, and then he was given the sign of circumcision, that all who would be part of Israel now do this sign uh, just to, to say basically you're part of the covenant, not to earn anything. So what he's saying here, God's people are not based on biological descent from Abraham, but from spiritual, right? Spiritual descent. So he, as you read here, all this circumcision, meaning we now can be sons of Abraham without getting circumcised by faith in the same God that he placed his faith in. What's our sign? Baptism. Similar. You know, this isn't teaching about baptism, but, but those who opted in to the Abrahamic covenant were, were circumcised. Those who are opted in to the new covenant, what do we do? We're baptized. Does baptism save us? Nope. Just like circumcision didn't save them, it's belief and faith. And then we do the sign, which we're doing on the 19th, if you want to get baptized. And it's a sign basically telling everybody, I have new life in Christ. So that's our sign. Now look at 13 through 15. We're going to see the other covenant. It says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it's adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So here, we already talked about the Abrahamic covenant. Now here's the Mosaic covenant, which came 430 years after Abraham. And this was the law given to Moses. So if you remember, Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they had been in, uh, enslaved for 400 years. They weren't slaves the whole time, but at the end, they were slaves. He leads them out, and on their journey, they stop at Mount Sinai, and God gives Moses the law. So if you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all those books kind of have this law in there. And so these Jews who are accepted by faith, right, the, the covenant with Abraham, now they have this covenant of law that is a conditional covenant. This one is, if you obey, you get blessing. If you disobey, 
you don't get blessing, you get the opposite. Um, but that didn't save anybody. It was still based on the previous covenant. Confusing? Go to group, let's talk about it. <laughs> but, but his point is really clear here, right? Is that the law came later. And if anybody is made right by law, then the promise is null and void. So if you think you can be made right with God through obedience, you are nullifying what Jesus did on the cross. That's why anybody you meet who's like, yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, I'm saved by faith, but I also have to do these things. You just made what Jesus did not good enough. This is the big problem really with the Catholic Church, right? And there are many believers in the Catholic Church. Don't get me wrong about that at all. But there is, they add to it, you have to go to confession. You have to go do this. You have to go do that. Meaning, Jesus did most of it, but, but it's Jesus and you have to do these other things to really fulfill your salvation. If you do that, you're saying Jesus wasn't enough. The whole point Paul is saying here is Jesus is enough. Again, it was studying this that Martin Luther realized he could be saved by faith, and boom, we have the Reformation, right? He was a Catholic priest and a monk, and he looked at the way things were going, and he says, no, this isn't it. As he studied Romans, faith is enough, and it set him free. And I'm hoping that's what we gain from this, is that faith sets us free. So what is faith? What is faith? Well, here's the first point. We're going to look at three points of what faith is. One, as we see in these verses, faith is distinct from law. Faith is distinct from law, period. It's not faith and some good work. And we struggle with this. We really do. And maybe we struggle with ourselves, but maybe we struggle looking at others too, right? They can't be saved because they have these things in their lives. Oh, we have, we have to be careful with that because we don't know somebody else's heart or where they're coming from. Faith is distinct from law. In verse 15, it says, without law, there is no transgression. You know, just to understand what he's saying, transgression, that's not the same word as sin. Without the law, there is still sin. Transgression, that word means um, disobeying a direct command, right? If I tell, you know, my daughter, be home by 10, and she's home at 11, that's a transgression, <laughs> right? There's other things that we can do, though, without having the exact law that are still sin. So what he's saying here, that apart from the, the law, there is no transgression, but the law brings wrath because when you know the rules and then you don't follow them, you're even more uh, accountable. And so the Jews here, they had all these laws. They were more accountable to those. But faith is distinct from law. Now, before we get too far, you know, law is, is a thermometer. Uh, it can't do anything for you, right? It's like, but, oh, I'm sick, right? Law tells you you're sick. It gives you the rules to follow that you can never live up to, showing that you need a Savior. So what about us? If, if salvation and righteousness is totally apart from law, do our works matter? Does that mean we can go do whatever we want? Many, and even in this day, when this was written, were, were going there. They were saying, I'm saved by faith apart from law, then I can go do whatever I want, right? I can live however I want. And in Romans 6, he's going to address that. And in very strong words, he's going to say, heck no. No. In fact, Jesus reiterates the moral law that God gave to Moses, but he makes it even harder. Right? Moses got the law, don't commit adultery. Jesus said, if you even think lustfully about somebody, you're guilty. So he makes it even harder, but we're not made right by the law. Instead, there is the moral law, but then our obedience is 
because we love God, because we are righteous, now we want to walk differently. But if we ever think we're earning it, we're confused. Look at verse 16 and 17. It says, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written. I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Can you lose your salvation? Well, here the word is guaranteed. Our righteousness, our salvation is guaranteed because of God's grace. If salvation is not by faith and you can earn it, it's not guaranteed. Meaning, how long until you lose it? That's a scary way to live. If you think you've earned it, then guess what? You can also lose it, and I guarantee you will because you won't be good enough. Because the, the standard is perfection. That's what God demands, a perfect obedience to the law, which we can't do, but Jesus did and could be our sacrifice. So this gives us hope, right? Our salvation is guaranteed because of faith, because of Jesus, not because of anything we have done. Because the promise here, it rests on grace, a free gift. And he reiterates again here, not just the children of Abraham biologically, but those who are his children by faith. We're kind of opted in to God's family by faith. It says there that, you know, Abraham was promised to be a father of many nations. How is that possible? Well, because we're, we're part of that, Right? We're not Israelites. We're Americans. We're a different nation. And there's Africans. and I mean, go all through, right? All children of Abraham because of the promise given to Abraham. Here's the second thing. Faith has no power in itself, but because of the one in whom we place our faith. Let me read that again. Faith has power not in itself, but because of the one in whom we place our faith. Look at verse 17 again. Second half. It says, In the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. What's he talking about here? Well, Abraham is too old to have kids, right? Uh, uh, Sarah's womb is barren. It's, it's, it's dead. We're going to see that in these verses. God gives life to that. So our faith isn't in faith. Our faith is in God, right? It is in the one who can do anything. Uh, maybe you remember the, the miracle on ice, uh, 1980, 81. Um, I was really little. Uh, but the, the American hockey team was made up, I think, of college students. Um, and they played the Russian team who was just all studs, right? It wasn't even going to be a competition. The Americans win. Well, at the end, and if you can go look it up, they made a movie out of it, Miracle on Ice. But at the end, the announcer says, do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in miracles? Well, for us, we don't believe as Jesus followers in miracles. We believe in the one who can do miracles. There's a difference. Do you see that? We don't have faith in faith. We have faith in God. Sometimes people will have faith, and you'll hear Christians, well, I just have faith. Well, you're doing something stupid you shouldn't. Right? Our faith is in God, not in whatever we want, or, you know, or whatever we're trying to do, but in God. Abraham is given the example. Look at 18. It says, in hope, 
Abraham, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. I love how clear Paul writes, right? I mean, this is so easy to understand. Abraham, right, can't have kids. I'm impossible. God says, you're going to have kids. And he says, okay. That's the belief. He believed that was credited to him. Again, the word credited comes up again as righteousness. Not because he did anything, because he simply believed what God said to be true. Do you believe in God? Right? And that's why I began with the question, what's your percentage of faith? Are you all in? Because this is the God we're talking about. The one who can bring the dead to life. The one who can do anything. Our faith is in him. Can anybody create something out of nothing? No, only God. Now, real quick, it looks here like Abraham never wavered at all. Abraham did have doubts. In fact, his son Isaac... The, the name Isaac actually means he laughs. Because when God told Abraham, you're going to have a kid and, through Sarah, he's like, <laughs> wait, really? I mean, he chuckled. He chuckled with a little bit of doubt there. And so they named his son Isaac. So he struggled with doubt. So don't read this and go, man, I wish I could be as perfect in faith as Abraham. Read the scripture. I love it. Because there's nobody perfect in here except for Jesus. Right? We're lumped in with all these other people that struggle. So Abraham struggled, but he landed on faith. He believed. In fact, this son Isaac, who God promised, he said, through Isaac, through this son, you will be many nations. It is through this son. Later, God says, hey, I want you to go sacrifice Isaac. And so they gather the wood. They climb the mountain. Isaac is carrying the wood. He's like, where's the sacrifice? <laughs> right? Isaac's starting to figure it out. Abraham's like, we'll see when we get there. <laughs> they get up there. He lays Isaac on. He's going to obey God. He's going to kill Isaac. And, of course, we know the story. God stops him, provides a ram who's stuck in a bush over here. In the New Testament, we see what Abraham was thinking. We're told Abraham believed God could raise the dead. That's why he was going to go through with that. Because God had already promised that through Isaac, he would make a great nation. Through Isaac. Now he's telling him to kill Isaac. He must believe that God's going to do something, and he did. He believed God would work a miracle and rise him from the dead. So he was going to obey. That's faith, right? The work is a result of the faith, and God stops the work and provides for him. But again, faith has power not in itself, but because of the one in whom we place our faith. And here's the third thing. Faith is based on God's word. Faith is based on God's word. It's not faith in faith. It's based on what he promised. He promised some things to Abraham. That's what he believed, what God said. It's about the promise. Look at verse 23. It says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 
That is what we believe. That is what our faith is based on. The truth of Jesus' death and resurrection. Not a spiritual resurrection. He rose bodily from the dead. Paul will write elsewhere, if if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we're still in our sin. Right? And, and, And you can throw the whole Bible out. It's worthless. But the faith, our faith, is based on God's word, on what he says, on what he's promised. So often we can get this wrong, you know, uh, with gas prices, what they are. I've started looking at electric cars. And I looked at Teslas. I'm like, hmm, that looks cool, right? right? I mean, they can go really fast. You can charge them up, whatever. But they're really expensive. And so, you know, doing the math of, okay, how long would it have to work out with gas prices? And it would be years. And I can't afford to buy one now anyway. We, we, you know, we're committed to really just pay cash for cars. And so am I going to get a loan for $800 a month for this? Well, I can't afford a loan for $800 a month. But many times, and I hear Christians do this. Well, I just have faith. It'll work out. Well, that's just bad stewardship, (laughs) right? For, For me to take on this debt of $800 a month that I can't afford, that's dumb. That's not faith. And God makes no promises about that. He's like, you're on your own on that one. I told you to be wise, and and that's dumb, right? (laughs) And so our faith is based on what he has promised, meaning we need to get to know his word. We need to get to know what he's promised. We need to get to know him because he's the one we place our faith in. It's all about him and what he promised. Now, let me ask this. Do you believe what God says and some other things, right? It's like this, and I'm going to weigh this with what Oprah says too. You know, um, maybe the people in here wouldn't be Oprah, but but Dr. Phil or Scientific American um, or another spiritualist, right? It's like some of this and some of this. God says, no, it's it's all this. It's it's all me. Do you trust me completely? Do you read God's word and you're like, oh, there's some pieces I don't really like, and so I'm going to do it my own way. Well, he says the things that he's told us are for our good. So it actually sets us free to go all in. Right? I mean, it's, it's back to that, that wake surfing analogy. Let go of the rope. It's a lot more fun. Our life, when we trust God completely, is a lot more fun because we trust him. Right? Sexual morality. Our, our world says do it this way. God says that's going to be destructive and it's going to hurt you. We are free to just believe him. And, and sex is between one man, one woman within marriage. We can believe that because he says it. And guess what? Life goes better when we do it his way. Is it that, or maybe some other things where you're like, I wish that wasn't in here, right? And, you, and honestly, we all struggle with some of those things. I'm not sure I believe that part fully. He says, go in all the way, 100%. What is faith? Hebrews, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's what faith is. See, it's the things not seen because it's based on promises of God. It's based on things he says, but we like to see, right? We like to do the experiment, or test it out and prove it. He says, no, faith is trusting me. Abraham believed before Sarah was pregnant, right? It wasn't based on, well, I'll believe it when you prove it. That's not faith. Faith is before it's proven because our faith is in the person who will do it. And he gives us an example two verses later in Hebrews 11.3. He says, by faith... We understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Raise your hand if you were there at creation, (laughs) right? And and there's all these claims out there about what happened at creation. Well, we have it written in Genesis, and that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Go back to what's written. 
it was written by Moses. God inspired Moses to write that. That's, it was out of nothing with the word. That's how God created. I was in a car with kids yesterday, and they were joking around about or two days ago. Joking, hey, we came from soup. Did you know we came from soup? And they're, I'm like, what? That's what your school's teaching? Well, no. I said, well, what is your school teaching? Well, God created. I said, how? And they knew it. They said, with a word. That's exactly right. With a word. He spoke, right? Until he created men and women. That was hands-on, showing God's intimacy with us. But nobody was there. We didn't see it. We can just believe it. That's faith. That's faith. Believing what he says. So again, what do we add to our faith? What do we add to our righteousness? Nothing. This sets us free. I hope you understand that. It sets us free to just follow and have faith and believe. It's not believe and then do a bunch of good works. Now, when we truly fall in love with Jesus, we will do good works because he'll do them through us because it's what we want to do, right? I mean, at 1 o'clock, we have this foster event. Why? Because we care about families and kids in our community. That's why. Not because we're trying to accomplish something or achieve something or or get a badge, whatever. It's because we love people because God loves people. That's why we do these things. But as we wrap up, I want to go back to verse 17 because this is the big point we should walk away with. Verse 17. Let me read it again. It says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations and the presence of God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. What do you need God for right now? What is that? Is it a relationship that is dead? God can give life to the dead. Isn't it an addiction that's just got you and you just can't beat it? Guess what? He can beat it. What is it in your life you need to trust God completely with? Because he can do anything. Our faith is in him. We can trust him. It's not too late, right? We're not past whatever, you know, I tried to get over that sin. I can't anymore. I tried to fix that relationship. I can't anymore. God can. Our faith is in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you again for your word. Um, Thank you for inspiring Paul to write this and to show us that we add nothing to our righteousness. And that's actually very freeing when we realize that we can add nothing to our salvation. We can add nothing to our righteousness. We are just free to believe in you and then to follow you. We are free to believe what you say in your word is true and is best for us. God, I do pray, if anyone in this room has something, uh, whether it's a a belief or or an addiction or a sinful habit, whatever it is, that's not in line with what you want for them, God, I pray that they would say yes to you, that they would let go of that rope and trust you completely, that you would fill them with the joy, the peace, and the hope that comes through fully trusting you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we move back to worship, I'm going to be uh, back here on the right. Um, And if you want to talk, if you want to pray, if you hear this, you're like, I have not placed my faith in Jesus as Lord, come talk to me. I'd love to talk with you or pray with you.